3: Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. All right, welcome back to uh, Revolution of Military Affairs, a uh, podcast about war and warfare. Uh, today we're continuing our series with Hypergiant, and uh, we're talking with Quentin Donnellan. Uh, who goes by Q. So throughout the conversation, I'll be referring to him as Q, just so you guys are all uh, tracking that. And uh, he works uh, he works with Hypergiant and uh, is a key player within the organization. So I thought it was uh, in conversation with the leadership of Hypergiant. Uh, Q is a, a great person to bring in to talk about uh, what Hypergiant does. And specifically today, we'll be talking in a bit of depth about uh, c 2 So With that cue, uh, before we get started, just thank you for your time. I know it's been uh, challenging uh, to get the time locked in, but I I really appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Amos. You know, one of the, uh, I guess, the consequences of of success in the business side is uh, calendars are hard to wrangle. So I appreciate the patience. Uh, Happy to be on here uh, talking with you and your audience today.
3: Thank you. And uh, I guess the first question, and this is what I've opened up with with uh, both Mike Betzer, uh, Jay, and Mike Finlent, is um, what is artificial intelligence?
2: That's a heck of an opening question. <laughs> quite quite loaded, you know, I, I, you know the academics, there there are, of course, academic answers out there that you can peruse. And there's a wide range, certainly, on the marketing definition of, what justifies being able to say you are an AI company or, or artificial intelligence should be ascribed to the things that, that you provide. I'll provide a perspective from the lens of how does artificial intelligence aid the warfighter in the particular domains that Hypergiant, my company, is contributing in. And, and I would say kind of at a very high level, artificial intelligence is the decision aids provided to a human warfighter that helps tighten the kill chain, um, reduce the OODA loop, uh, reduce time to decision, all of those sorts of things, right? And of course, that is behind the scenes, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. But in general, it's leveraging specifically software-defined systems to get to a decision with higher confidence um, in a more timely manner than kind of traditional only human-based systems. And and we can maybe dive into one of these rabbit holes if you want, but to me, that's what artificial intelligence comes down to, is how do you leverage software-defined systems uh, in a way that adds an extra efficiency, confidence, or time-based boost to the decision process?
3: Yeah, no, that's good. I, I'm actually happy to run down one of those rabbit holes here, um, if you don't mind. Uh, my next question, really, and it's a, a very general question as well, but it's tied to what you just said. So why is AI important? Because I think what you see or what you will see or what you know a lot of folks have seen is that uh, a lot of times military commanders often feel like they are the best ones to make decisions. Uh, these folks are ten- generally also you know, a bit older, so they're less inclined to be Uh, technologically savvy and technologically uh you know intelligent and so they may view something like ai that's cutting into their decision making because ultimately you know decision making everybody makes recommendations to the commander but the commander is the one who makes the decision so um yeah just dive down a bit more on on how that actually increases the confidence because i like that phrase you said a higher higher confidence in desu- uh, decisions?
2: There's a huge corpus of debate behind this entire topic, right? Like, what does it actually mean to have confidence? Who is actually making the decision, even if there's a decision authority that rests in a specific individual? Those in, those decisions being informed by many things, including AI and other individuals, perhaps. Um, is it a rubber-stamped decision? You know, like, wh- what does it actually mean to, like, have the authority to make decisions. And so there's there's a whole bunch of debate that we could have there. But I would say this, right? And that is the commander, especially in a war fighting scenario or especially in a kill chain where there are pretty extreme consequences for making the wrong decision and even making the right decision has implications that are uh, severe, let's say. Um, it is important that that authority still rests with the commander as they have executed decisions for quite some time. And I and I think replacing those decisions with a fully autonomous chain seems to be clearly a mistake. But when you examine those traditional decision processes, I think we have to take some humility when we say, well, perhaps that commander never actually had the confidence that he or she thought they had prior. And what I mean is there are a lot of decisions that are being made without any evidence at all, without anything more than perhaps just a gut feeling, um, or maybe there are data supporting an effective decision. Maybe there is a justified reason for doing things, but those, those data or th- that information or that justification arrives to that authority too late, right? So the timeline within which they could process information is just very, very fast on the modern battlefield. And so leveraging AI helps to deliver the right data, it helps to deliver insights in a manner that actually affords the commander confidence in a timeframe that that makes sense. Um, and, and a lot of this just goes back to examining with candor the processes of the past and realizing that though you have a human in the loop that you can say, well, this person was responsible perhaps in the past they never really had confidence beyond a gut gut reaction. Right. And so for those sorts of decision processes, I think that's where AI is incredibly effective uh, because AI almost by definition software defined systems can process tremendous amounts of data Globally, much faster than any human could.
3: One of the phrases that you used there, that I thought was really well, was um, uh, you, you spoke uh, you spoke about candor, and I think that that's where AI can also help. as I think about AI and its application in this entire decision making process is that it can help eliminate organizational bias in many cases because it doesn't, you know, accidentally or uh, purposefully inject you know, whatever bias the organization may have, right? So if a commander likes a certain thing a certain way, but that leads to bad decisions, but the organization doesn't realize that, theoretically, that's something that I think um, AI can help help solve, you know, just along the process of providing data that's not been tainted by that. And, you know, like you said, that getting the information in there quickly. So I guess with that, let's transition here to talk about C 2 So I think, this phrase it's thrown around quite a bit and I think over the past couple of years it's had a letter and a couple of numbers added to it because uh, it started off as a fall, far smaller uh, acronym and so what is C c2 and uh, why should you know your average you know the, like the listener to this podcast why should they care what it is
2: yeah and, and actually just just going going back to the bias question just real quick because anyone who is kind of astute on on AI I think Gladly, you know, would would raise their hand uh, because whenever you mention bias, especially if you're trying to say, oh, AI comes and eliminates human bias, that's true. Humans that are a decision process have specific biases, but AI also has its own unique biases too. So you're not eliminating biases; you're just trading off maybe a human bias uh, with yeah. a, with an artificial bias. So. That's and that's a whole. something,
3: too, with the code writers and the people that write all the algorithms, the, the bias at that end also trickles down through, correct?
2: That's Yeah, that, that's correct. And, and I, I think the best thing that we do, again, queuing in on that word candor, it's not important to eliminate bias, right? Like, it, it is actually fine for bias to be present in the systems. And, and in many ways, we rely on bias. Uh, if it's a human decision maker, I rely on someone who has years and years and years of experience to bring that experience to the fore. Uh, because that experience colors their decisions. And that's important. But but what's important is to understand and and kind of capture that the bias is present so that when you're making a decision, you kind of can you understand what sorts of biases uh, are present. And so if you're developing an AI system, it's it's important for you to present not just a recommendation, let's say, or not just that decision aid, but also package it with the assumed biases that went along with it. And then that, that helps inform the commander. Um, when when they're making trade-off decisions. So anyway, there's there's a huge rabbit hole there and again when you talk about academic discussions I mean this is one of the top academic discussions when it comes to ethics of AI especially uh, in the military. So um, I couldn't I couldn't let this conversation go <laughs> without tapping on that just a bit.
3: No, oh, that's terrific because I you think know. that that's a that's an important an important aspect of all this to understand, too, is that it's helpful when you point out the bias, too, within an organization and the bias within those, you know, the, the system that's coming, because uh, a lot of times people don't see themselves, organizations don't see themselves very well. And so uh, the ability to, to count for, I think, I forget what you said specifically, but I liked it, where you just package that bias and let it be known that it's there but you don't necessarily remove it from the equation. You just say, Hey, by the way, it's it's fact, it's factoring this bias uh, in, um, but all right. Thank you um, for that. So JAD C or CJADC2, yeah, sorry. C-JAD it's, C2. it's been like 15 times since I have <laughs> <laughs> first started hearing about it. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it, it started as well. I don't know what it started as, but at some point in mo- it, it morphed into JADC2 or joint all domain command and control. They appended a, a C. Um, which, um, I've actually seen different interpretations of even what the C means, but, but in general, right, like the idea is gone are the days where you have a kill chain fully prosecuted in a single domain by a single service. Um, there are kill chains, uh, and there are mission workflows, which almost ubiquitously require multi-domain support. Um, and when we say domain here, we're talking. Um, things that are happening terrestrially, things that are happening in the air, things that are happening in the space, uh, and also other dimensions, things that are happening in the cyber domain. Um, And and there there are many, many different domains. But the idea is there's a mission which relies on all of those. Um, And then the joint aspect is it's not just an army unit prosecuting a specific mission thread. It's an army unit in collaboration with an air component, with a sea component, with a space component. Um, and, and so this idea of how do we compose kill chains or kill webs? How do we compose mission threads where all of these different domains come together and all of these different formerly disparate service elements work together? And of course, the challenge from a um, weapons systems perspective or from a uh, engineered systems perspective is that traditionally, these missions were supported by systems that were developed completely isolated from the others, right? So the space components or the space system separate from a land system, separate from an air system, and even within some of these systems, like a space system is separate from another space system, which is separate from another space system. So composing these kill webs or composing these, these kill chains or stitching together um, course of action decisions that relies on information from all of these, is a truly challenging problem because fundamentally, these different systems just, they don't talk to each other. I can't put data, I can't pull data from one domain and plop it in context with another domain. Um, and that's that's kind of the core problem that JADC2, um, JADC2 efforts within the different service um, elements are trying to solve. How do we break down these silos, whether it's a domain silo or a, a services silo or specific mission thread silo? How do we break down those silos so that the different domains, the different services, the different missions can share information and collaborate and create much more interesting solutions to to war fighting problems?
3: Yeah, so as you were talking about that, a couple of of ideas popped up in my head. Um, And so just a few follow up questions. So I'm gonna list the three real quick, just so you hear them and so I can remember them. I wrote them down, but I'm, I'm gonna throw them out there and then I'm gonna actually <laughs> f- flesh out the actual question so the first one is challenges seconds vulnerabilities and thirds prioritization so with that uh, I know you you mentioned some of the challenges and I guess I'm gonna wrap this into the vulnerabilities question this seems like something that potentially given the fact that it's a network centric approach or a, a network it depends on a network um, it seems like it would be highly sensitive to enemy actor, tapping into that sensor and and putting in bad data or bad information or not not that well they could tap into the sensor sensor or the network whatever the case may be and and put bad data on that network is that something that's uh popped up as a significant challenge on your end Uh,
2: let me talk about thermostats like home residential thermostats right because i think i think this will this will put maybe some perspective to this which is kind of interesting and that is there, there's a tendency to think here that like, Oh, the more compelling a system gets, the more prone it is to um, attack from the cyber domain. Like, Ooh, I've got this really juicy jadc C2 software system over here. That's definitely going to be a target of some state-sponsored cyber attack. Sure. But also my home thermostat that's sitting in my house right next, you know, over here, one room over is also, um, is also a, a threatened asset on, on the, the global internet.
1: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Any
2: IP address out there can be assumed to be a target from cyber bad actors. Just period. That, this is this is how the cyber domain works. If you broadcast yourself or you expose yourself to the internet or to a global network, you are um, you are potential um, you are potentially on an attack surface. Um, and so I think regardless of how large and complex and cohesive these JADC2 systems are, or how how large and cohesive these JADC2 systems are not. So so that means either it's a giant cloud-based infrastructure, or it's a very localized individual, kind of dropped in small network, both of them are targets. Um, and so I, I think it's probably a mistake to think of, oh, just because this system is huge and massive, and crosses across different uh, domain and mission boundaries, that it's more of a target. Um, in ways, perhaps it seems like a bigger, juicier target, um, but a small system, especially if it's a system that's focused on prosecuting Kiltrain, if it em- employs modern software technology, will also be a target too. So I, I, we, shouldn't get in a, we shouldn't get in this trap of thinking that, oh, I'm small, I'm just a thermostat in someone's home, I'm not going to be a target for a cyber attack I think that that's a dangerous thinking. but I will say this when you consolidate things into complex systems when you pull everything together. There's a there's a leveraged risk there when that system gets attacked and more and more things are plugged into it and depend on it. Then the consequences of a successful attack attack are greater, right? If my thermostat goes down in my home. Well, there's just one house here that's going to be warm or cold for a few days. Big deal, right? But if an entire JADC two system goes down, obviously that that's a bigger impact. So that's I, I would probably characterize the scope or the casualty uh, impact of, of a consolidated attack on on a central system, um, potentially being um, where where that may be interesting.
3: Yeah, no, that's helpful and very useful. I like the uh, the thermostat analogy. Um, I too, um, or I I assume you live in Te- you live in Texas, right?
2: Yes, I live in Texas. We we okay. rely on our thermostats. Uh,
3: yeah. That's what I was going to say. Lot. So so I, too, live in central Texas. And, uh, you know, the thermostat thing, you don't even need a cyber attack to take it down with uh, the Texas power grid being what it is. You know, um, <laughs> we made it through this winter without losing power, which was nice, but I guess it's not quite over yet. Um, so the other question then on that, on the c 2 is priori- prioritization. And so when I hear you talk about c 2 I think about project convergence. I assume this is one of the systems or one of the things in which this um, this operates. And I know within that project convergence idea, it's any sensor, any shooter, you know, you know, whatever the rest of that little phrase is, potentially, and I'm sure this is part of what's being worked out or what has been worked out, but how does prioritization work If the idea is to reduce the amount of time that something's going through that OODA loop, and getting uh, that tight coupling between target identification and you know rounds impacting on the target. How do you how do you balance doing that quickly at one place across a very broad front, or is that something that is still being worked on?
2: This is a problem that I think is going to be worked on in perpetuity. Right? Um, when you look at software systems, kind of writ large, nothing is ever done. Right? When when you deliver a product, a la you deliver some software system that accomplishes a task especially in a warfighting domain, as soon as that goes out into quote-unquote production, or as soon as it sees the light of day, the definition of that task changes. Uh, Maybe there's a cyber vulnerability, as we just discussed, that needs to be remediated. Maybe the enemy changes tactics. Maybe you deploy a new sensor. Whatever it is, the environment for which that software was originally authored changes almost immediately, um, you know, post the day that it's pushed out to the environment. So when it comes to software-defined systems, you have to always be um, amending the software, making improvements, fixing gaps, et cetera. So I, th- I think there would be a danger to think about deploying or acquiring a JADC2 system, whether it be through Project Convergence or um, you know you you name your JADC2 flavor. Um, to think that that's an acquisition exercise that's going to be wrapped up in a box, tied a bow on top of, and in three years it's going to be done is just that that's that's a disaster kind of by prescription um so this is a project that's going to go on kind of in perpetuity the other thing i would say when it comes to priorities in many ways the priorities are kind of tough to swallow because the number one priority is integration getting all of the systems together uh, when you talk about sensor to shooter um well there's a lot of nuts and bolts and uh Warring wheels and mechanics that have to actually be connected before you can show a sensor to shoot your shooter kill chain. So step one is having to integrate all of those things. Um, laying the groundworks for data being in one place, laying the groundworks for software developers on one part of the system to quickly ingest and react to problems from another side of the system. Those sorts of things. Um, don't look like traditional acquisition because software development in many ways is is not like traditional uh, software acquisition but laying the foundation for a software ecosystem to thrive is kind of the number one priority getting the software developers getting the infrastructure getting the integrated bits into a room so that you can respond to those emerging changes in the environment is more important than delivering any one capability but that being said of course, we have specific capabilities that we do have to we do have to deploy, and and I'm not an expert. You know, when we talk about project convergence or the Army's requirements for JADC2, there are certainly priorities in the kill chain that must be delivered before other ones. Um, and so, that's you know that's the the chief problem of of someone who's perhaps running uh, a, c, a C2 or a c 2 program within, within uh, project conversions. But when I put on my software engineering lens, to me, the number one priorities have got to be, you have to set the conditions. You have to set the integration, the consolidation, the software development, I kind of call it the second and third derivatives. How are you actually going to build software to respond to these threats? You got to get that base plate down first, and then you can go start attacking uh, your, your individual mission priorities. I I don't know if that makes sense. A lot of this is is jargon as I'm jumbling it out, but it's 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 just, it's different than building hardware, you know?
3: Yeah. No, that's good. The, uh, another thing that I was thinking about, um, I guess it's a branch off prioritization is as we're thinking about these systems and how they're actually contextualized in the real world. And if you have any examples from the other services, maybe the air force, the Navy, feel free to throw those in. But as I think about it, I can see the logic that it would cause command posts and headquarters to, to shrink potentially because you don't need as many people doing as many things. But again, I'm not a computer guy at all. When it comes to this kind of thing, Um, would it actually cause Uh, the number of people and things to go down? Or would it cause, do you think maybe it's almost a a relative just shift in what the people do? How do you see that impacting command posts and the headquarters and a tactical on the battlefield sense?
2: There's a, there's, this is kind of like the classic industrial revolution is gonna kill our jobs kind of argument, right? Um, And and whether you're asking this question from um, a software perspective, how is software gonna replace XYZ employee or you're asking it from an AI perspective. How are automating some of these decision processes going to take humans out of the decision loop and replace them with robots? To me, it's 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 a lot of the same of that industrial revolution. We're automate we're automizing a, a process. We're making something more efficient, and therefore people are going to lose their jobs, or there are going to be less people involved in the thing that um, that was, you know, the process that we had in place before. And of course, over time, you see that that argument is just, it, does, it doesn't end up coming true ever, right? The people end up doing fundamentally different things. That's 100% true. When the industrial revolution came, came across, the way that we made widgets, the way that we made cars, the way that we uh, produce energy, all of those sorts of things changed in fundamental ways, and we no longer needed people to do the things they were doing prior. Absolutely. Absolutely. But those people went on to do more complex things in the system, and they made more complex widgets, and they made more complex cars, and the world is, of course, way better off for it. So when you look at JADC2, again, whether we're talking about adding some software to the decision loop or adding artificial intelligence models that make that decision process faster, it is absolutely going to change how humans interact with that environment. It's going to change the decision process of commanders. It's going to change how operators down their coffee and conduct their nine to five or whatever but it's not going to replace the need for people to add human expertise to increasingly complex systems and also as that system becomes more complex it's going to require people on the back end to sustain those systems and again if you look at industrial robotics there's an entire industry now that never existed prior to um i don't know 20 or 30 years ago and that is the sustainment of these incredibly complex artificially enabled industrial systems. Um, so there are people who are getting degrees in, there are people who are getting certifications in managing these giant robots um, that help in providing um, the, uh, the, the, the mechanized automation of industrial processes. And those, those jobs never existed prior. So will it change some of the jobs from the past? Absolutely. And it will create new ones and it will require humans to engage in more complex ways with systems that are becoming inherently more complex.
3: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. I hadn't, uh, <clears throat> and I kind of was alluding to it uh, a bit in the question, but you fleshed it out in, a, I think, a, a very tangible way. Uh, people will do different things and they'll be doing more complex work in the system and it'll likely create whole new uh, career fields uh, for humans uh, that didn't exist in the past or that don't exist today um if you will um so i guess uh, as we we're getting to the uh the end of our time here uh q so is there anything else that we haven't talked about yet that you'd like to uh to mention before we uh before we break today
2: yeah just to talk a little bit about what we're doing on the air force side because um i think a lot of conversations get lost in capabilities right which is what are you guys delivering to your customer what sorts of requirements are you um Are you box checking such that a customer XYZ gets closer to some Jazzy two reality? And those things are important. It's important that we are delivering a capability today that didn't exist yesterday. But what's more important to us and what's more important to the US government if they can embrace this on a larger scale, is that, and I mentioned it before, kind of like that first or second derivative of how we're delivering, it. right? We are not software engineers sitting in a room looking at a list of requirements coding up solutions, putting a red bow on it, shipping it, and saying, there, you now have this capability, right? This, the entire process of sitting down and understanding how have things changed since we originally assessed this problem is fundamentally a new thing. Right now in the private sector, you talk about agile software delivery, tr- true agile software delivery, not this, uh, kind of make believe agile that we see in a lot of places, but true agile software delivery, which is We thought we knew what we thought we knew a year ago, but things have totally changed. And therefore what I'm delivering today is something that uh, didn't exist or didn't exist as a thought for a requirement back when we were put on contract. That is so very important, like true nimbleness to environmental and threat changes. If you're not baking that into your software acquisition, you're just setting yourself up for for a failure. And, And I just, I commend the Air Force uh, because I think that's one of the things that they've truly done very well, specifically in uh, in their cloud-based command and control effort, which is the Air Force, one of the Air Force's uh, responses to JADC2, is that not getting distracted by a scripted requirements generated in the past, but embracing agile software delivery, so that as as environmental conditions change, uh, software engineers uh, and and everyone supporting this program can respond in li- in light like kind. So. Um, it, it's it's a nuance of software development that doesn't necessarily exist uh, on in traditional acquisitions, uh, but it's such a such a big part of it.
3: It seems like you would have to, and I'm sure this this probably happened, but break down a lot of institutional uh, processes and barriers uh, to deliver that type of software software with the bow on it, but that software package that's always being updated.
2: It's almost like you're not acquiring software, right? You're acquiring the capacity for software development, right? Like as as a government purchaser or a government buyer, I want to have a result. I want to have a capability. But if you require for that capability, you're gonna get it. And the needs for the capability are gonna change and you're gonna wish you had a way to change those things. So it's about acquiring the capacity for software development. It's about acquiring teams that can deliver changes not so much acquiring a capability as prescribed by requirements documentation but yes it it requires the right institutional mindset it requires a contracting officer in an organization who understands software delivery in the true modern sense of the word um and it's it's not easy not easy
3: yeah I'm, I'm, (laughs) i'm sure that's been quite challenging to force that through so um Q, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, so I'm going to go ahead and let you get going. So just thank you very much for your time, and I appreciate your uh, conversation today.
2: I appreciate you, Amos. Thanks for having me on.
3: All right.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands.